What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. What is that that, uh, that Carl just said? We have Les Miserables? Well, let me tell you, uh, I'll give you a brass figligy with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me how that was pronounced around my house when I was nine years old. I will uh, give you the brass figligy there if you can tell me. I, I'll bet you'll find it hard to guess. Of course, uh, South Chicago French has a very special flavor. And uh, it was pronounced in the my house, as, as it was also pronounced down at George's Pool Room and Pinball, where much Indiana French was dispensed. <laughs> That's the truth. Uh, Carl, in case you're interested, it was pronounced around my house, Less Miserables. And uh, that seemed to have, uh, <laughs> well, what's the matter? Less Miserables. You ought to hear how the French pronounce Connecticut. That's a pretty wild scene, too. And, of course, we don't think that's funny when they mispronounce it. It's colorful and, and it's so French. And so delightful, but we're very embarrassed when we say Less Miserables is the name of that great book by uh, 
what's his name? Victor Hugo, isn't it? Yes, Victor Hugo. And uh, there, I, I have to admit a really terrible thing here tonight, and I don't want to admit it at all, but I have to because of circumstances over which I have little or no control, and if the facts were out, few of us have little or no control over any circumstances, actually. You ever feel how the feeling you're caught in some big rotten net and your foot stuck in the mud and you're beginning to go down on the quicksand for the third time and there'll be no going back and the boss is going to finally give it to you right where you deserved it all along because actually you are rotten and decadent and have absolutely no talent if the truth were out. You know that feeling that all of your life you've been covering up, you've gone to the Dale Carnegie choruses, you've learned accounting, you've even gotten yourself a toupee, you keep your teeth from having telltale yellow, and you try to keep your knees loose and supple, you buy the Lenny Bruce records and the Joan Baez discs, and you subscribe to the Village Voice and the Post and the Reporter and Show and all the rest of them to try to keep up with the world, and in addition to that, you carry a New York Times around, and still you're decadent, rotten, untalented, and inadequate to anything that comes along, especially anything that involves more than a three-letter word, and anything that, and even if it doesn't, Oh, how did I get on that? That's terrible. I'm sorry, friends. After all, it's only Monday, and we don't want to push you too hard. I don't want to be pushed either, so don't push. That's all. I won't push, and you won't push, and we'll sit here like two lumpens. Just sitting there. <laughs> clay lumpen. Well, while we're on the subject of clay lumpen, you know, you ever know what happened? He used to work over at Esquire. I remember he was in the in the fiction department. Of course, that's what happened to their fiction department. Oh, Clay, Clay Lumpen, and his avant-garde ideas. That, uh, oh, oh, excuse me, there, madam. Yeah, it's an in joke. You wouldn't know about that, so we want to be in, do we? Well, speaking of being in, uh, I, I just have to admit the terrible thing. Uh, when when I heard Carl in there say, "So, are we going to have Les Miserables on the station here?" When was that made? Was that, that sounds like one of those murky films that we specialize in that are shot underwater. And they have these wild, terrible subtitles, and 97% of the values are cut out to make room for Mr. Clean commercials. <laughs> is, is that the kind of thing we can specialize in? It's very good, yeah. Yeah, you get the Reader's Digest version of the Reader's Digest articles, and it really, it's, it really works on its way down. Of course, it'll be a New York film debut, I'm sure. Everything is a New York film debut. That that I am a New York film debut here tonight, in case you're interested. This has never been heard in New York up to tonight. Of course, it won't be heard much after tonight either, as far as I know, the way things are going. But <laughs> when we're getting on with this problem of, uh, of Les Miserables, well, I, I, whenever I hear that, uh, and of course, this is touching home base, because uh, I would like you to guess, and I will award the brass figure with bronze oak leaf palm, how I got the name of J-E-A-N. All of you people who think it's spelled G-E-N-E, including you, Don, I've been here on this, this schedule for 115 years, and the IBM machine still spells a G-E-N-E on the log. Uh, it's J-E-A-N, and I would like you to guess how I got that name. Do you have to guess? No, nothing to do with girls. No, sir. In, 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 in Chicago, the name J-E-A-N had nothing to do with girls. It is only in the Effete East. The, the blandless East, where that would be thought of. It was never thought of, not once, in the Midwest. I'll tell you how, the, how it came about. No, you can have all kinds of names. One thing I will say about the Midwest, and, for the, and the South, too, for that matter, they are much, much more uh, tolerant as far as names is, are concerned. You can call yourself Radish. Oh, yeah. I knew guys named Cletus, uh, all kinds of names. And if you had an, any, a name like that, you'd have to just bury it out in the backyard here in New York. 
if you had a name like that. Really, that's the truth. I knew a guy's name was just LG, that's all. His name was LG. His parents liked the name LG. That, because many years ago they'd had a very distinguished insurance man named LG Adams. And uh, they didn't know that his name was Leander Godfrey Adams. And so it just became LG Adams. And they named their kid LG. And for this, to this day his name is LG Adams. Now they, they, they don't think like that on the Grand Concourse. It's always the same. It's always the same old name. Uh, if I've been, if I, believe me, if I've met one herb, I've met a thousand here from the Grand Concourse. It's a, fun, it's a funny thing. And yet, yet somehow the name Gene seems to you to be somehow vaguely uh, subversive. It's a, it's a name that obviously, oh, your parents wanted a girl. Can you imagine my old man wanting a girl? You don't know my old man then if you say it. That's ridiculous. A girl. My old man had a terrible desire to breed, to beget a Chicago White Sox third baseman. Now, even in those days, they did not think in terms of femininity playing third base for the White Sox. It may come to that on the Mets, but this was the White Sox, Dad, where you played hard baseball, you smoked, drank, swore, and you batted 174. Uh, <laughs> it's a very different world. Well, now, how did I get this name? I will ask you. Well, I'll tell you how I I'll tell you. My, my, it was really, I was named after my old man. His name was Gene, too. But how did he get his name? That's the, that's the crux of it all. It seems that, that his sister, who was older than he was, was in, uh, deep in this, this uh, tremendous, uh, uh, this, this really uh, tremendous uh, romantic period that 15, 16-year-old chicks go through. They go th uh, now, the romantic period, uh, of course, has changed a little bit now that 16-year-old that, uh, chicks apparently in those days were romantic about other people. Today, the 16-year-old chick will be romantic usually about herself. She will fall tremendously in love with herself and will romanticize herself beyond all recognition. Well, it was different then, and, and old Aunt Glenn got very romantic, and she was reading a book called Less Miserables, which was a very romantic book. And uh, there was a guy named Jean Valjean in there, which is the way she would pronounce it then on the south side of Chicago. There was Jean Valjean. So it seems that at about that time in history, my grandmother was about to give was about to give birth to the greatest left-handed pool and snooker player to ever come out of 55th and Union. She didn't know that, of course, at that time, that she was about to give birth to greatness. And, and, and so uh, uh, all, all that, all that uh, they knew was that they were about to have this thing. Well, then finally this thing was born. And they stood around and they looked at each other and they thought about it. And uh, my aunt, being a very aggressive young girl, said that we should name him Gene. She was, of course, she couldn't go all the way. Jean Valjean. That, that, would, that would have been, I admit, that would have been tough on the South Side, a name like that. So, so she says, let's, let's go with Jean. So uh, my grandmother says, Jean? And uh, my aunt says, Jean, yes. As I say, she was a very aggressive girl there. So she says, Jean. So there's a lot of hollering back and forth. And finally, they decided to call him Jean. Well, my grandmother decided to, you know, fine. So she writes down G-E-N-E. Which was, and this is the truth, on the person, which was absolutely against all, all the, all, everything that my aunt, because she was really romantic, you know, Jean Valjean, the whole business, in the clash of sabers and dark Parisian alleys and all that, Les Miserables. Well, uh, <laughs> so there, there was a lot of confusion, and my aunt took the birth certificate right back to the hospital and said, you changed this, you misspelled it. 
Well, they never heard of it being spelled G J E A M like that on the south side. I'm telling you the actual story. So they never, they never. So they called up my grandmother. They said, uh, "There's this girl down here who says we misspelled it." And of course, they had the notary public and all that jazz. So, so my grandmother says, "Yes, uh, that's the way it is to be spelled. It's to be J E A N." Little realizing, of course, she was giving. Uh, she had just given birth to one of the great pool players of that period. And also, probably one of the greatest White Sox fans ever, ever, ever created, as <laughs> and a lot of other things. So, so uh, he he became known as Gene in the neighborhood. Well, now at that time, no one uh, knew uh, the idea of it being a girl. Never entered anybody's mind. It really didn't. And uh, they they just said it was misspelled. In fact, I have rarely been. Uh, it's rarely been the the the, the J E A N idea with being a girl's name has rarely been said to me, what is always said is that I don't know how to spell my name. That's what's always said. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, we are straight out, as we say, on the, Chicago, on the Chicago South Side, because certainly they knew trial and tribulation there. Uh, the trial and tribulation of the poor, simple denizens of the streets and the twisting byways of sewer-ridden Paris. Yes, les miserables, les miserables, les miserables. Ha, 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 laugh, laugh, laugh. Quack, quack, quack. Oh, the laughing of irony, the great enigmatic face of existence. Ha, ha, les miserables. Oh. All right, that's how I got my name. Speaking of les miserables, this is W-O-R, A-M and F-M, New York. You have no idea how tortured, and I will be here until it happens. You know, speaking of, uh, uh, did I say that we are in New York? Did I? Boy, I'll tell you, uh, <laughs> uh, we are heading for some great things in New York. Just wait till the giant traffic jam starts. About, I would say, about the third or fourth Sunday after the fair has opened, and the Mets are playing a doubleheader against the Giants, and all on Sunday afternoon, and every last Girl Scout, every Cub Scout, every rubberneck tourist. And everybody in Queens, as well as 4,000 ladies' clubs from Connecticut, all decide to go to the fair at once. Well, <laughs> I, I believe me, I believe there's going to be a gigantic iron scorpion, or an enormous iron, uh, an, an iron spider, really, with its center roughly about, uh, I would say, probably around the 59th Street Bridge. That will be the, where the head of it is. You won't know because you'll have to. It's like a tapeworm. You you know you cut off one head and it won't make any difference. I, I I believe that you'll be able to cut off whole arms of this thing and never even miss the people. I think the, the mess will be so great that a lot of people will be just glad to get rid of a lot of other people. They just don't show up anymore. No, no, really, I believe that we are going to see a traffic jam every Sunday, and of course it'll get worse on other that will extend roughly to Bridgeport uh, on the one end. And we'll go possibly down to Trenton on the other end, and we'll extend pretty nearly to Montauk out on the other end of the island. And inland in Jersey, we'll go possibly out to, uh, oh, I would guess around, uh, oh, I would say probably to the Pompano Lakes Department there, right around in that area, maybe even a little further. I'd say perhaps. Uh, uh, all the way on out to, uh, 
Allentown, Pennsylvania, maybe on some good days when the when the sun is out right, and it will be remain motionless. You see what what this what this giant spider will be like? It will be like a moribund spider. It won't move. You know, everyone thinks it's all going to be moving. No, I think it will just lay there. It will lay there and it will breathe gas in and breathe gas out. And uh, once in a while, it'll burst into flames at certain places where some guy's overload relay goes out and he throws a hand grenade into the car behind him. And uh, it's just going to lay there and steam and smoke. And in between all the little rows and lanes, you'll see guys who've decided to walk all the way from Pittsburgh. They'll be the only guys who'll actually get into the fair. Uh, I really do. I, I predict that in, within, within 25 years, within, within 30 years, the automobile will be as obsolete as the horse, as it already is in the city. That by the time our country is one big city, it will be as difficult to own a car as it will be to own a horse. As a matter of fact, today, in a city like New York, you can own a horse easier in some ways than you can a car. You don't have to at least change the antifreeze and no one's going to bump into it. And the insurance isn't as high on a horse. It really isn't. Did you, do you people out there know... Any of you guys who live outside of New York City, and it's going to come creeping into your area, too. It has to, uh, as the megapolis, as Lewis Mumford calls it, begins to slowly envelop us. You know, there's no more country anymore. Uh, there's just, uh, uh, there's the giant city, and then there's a little less city, and then there's another giant city, and then there's a little less city, and then there's another giant city. Well, eventually, all the blanks are going to be filled in. Of course, it's got to be. And, in, and when that day comes, owning a car will be strictly for the very, very, either the nutty or the very rich. Uh, just like owning a horse today. An eccentric can own a horse in the city, and also the very rich people can own a horse. And eventually, I believe that the car will go that way for a lot of reasons. Do uh, you know, those of you who live outside of New York, are you aware that to just own a car in New York City, I don't mean drive it around, I don't mean the burn up gas and burn up tires. I'm not even discussing the cost of the car itself, not even talking about depreciation of the car. We figured it out the other night, and I figured it out with the automobile editor of one of the one of the uh, one of the very hip papers, and in fact it's the village voice, Danny List, who knows cars. And we figured it out. And we we finally came to the figure that it costs a guy who has a car in New York City. And, of course, he, he wants to put it in some kind of a garage. Now, this is not the best kind of garage. He wants to put it in, this, in some kind of garage. Otherwise, uh, it is a fact that in New York, if you own a car and you don't garage it, at the end of the first year, you will have $7,000 in tickets. At the end of the second year, you won't have a car either. Because six months on the, on the New York streets parking is enough to take care of your trunk lid. It's enough to take care of your, your hood is pushed in already. There is no grill. Your car, which started out as, let's say, a wheelbase of 120, is now down to 95. It has a big hump in the middle where guys have banged in trying to get the parking place. You know, if they could put it on top of the curb or something, get rid of it, they would do that. But nevertheless, uh, it costs. How, how much would you guess it costs to own a car without even driving it in New York City on the average wall? You two guys, guess. 125 a month? Well, it caught you're, you're pretty close. As a matter of fact, we figured it out, and it comes to around between $1,100 and $1,250. Now, that doesn't include the price of the car. Maybe you included the price of the car, Walt, and depreciation. I'm just saying that's what it costs you to own a car in this city. 
about about twelve hundred dollars a year, roughly between between eleven fifty and possibly uh, between eleven fifty and thirteen hundred, depending on what insurance bracket you're in. Now that, by the way, is for a driver who is a good driver and has not gone on one of these uh, nutty uh, quality. Uh, what do they call it? Nutty. Uh, uh, insurance situations where he has to pay $700 just to drive the car. And uh, that's, of course, obtaining here in town, too. I know a couple of guys that have had just a couple of little, little uh, minor uh, fender-banging exercises, and they're already in the class where it costs them 500 bucks just to get into their 59 Plymouth uh, without the licenses and all the rest of it. Now, now that's, uh, that's, uh, that, of course, is obvious, then. It, it, the, the obvious thing is that in the end, for most people who live in New York, it is ridiculous to own a car if it's going to cost them that much. Now, let's say, huh? Where do I get it? Figure it out. Do you know how much it costs to... Huh? Yeah, do you live in Manhattan? Oh, well, then forget it. I'm sorry, in Manhattan, you see, if you don't think it costs... First of all, do you know what it costs insurance in Manhattan? Most people don't. Well, you, it's pretty hard to get by in Manhattan for insurance, just insurance, less than $250. Pretty difficult with any kind of coverage at all. It's around 250 for the ordinary automobile and up, by the way, depending on the kind of car you have. So it's around 250 right there. You cannot get a decent garage in New York City for anywhere between 45 and $60 a month. And uh, that's minimum, by the way. If you get one for uh, in most places in fairly decent livable areas in New York, if you get one for sixty, you are really lucky. Actually, well, add that up. <laughs> add that up. Then add that. Add your insurance to that. Add the fact that it is almost impossible in New York City to own a car without getting at least anywhere from five to ten tickets a year. And that's not a law-breaking guy. I have not been able to do it. I've tried every possible way. In Manhattan. I'm talking about Manhattan. I'm discussing Manhattan. Now, why are you so explicit? You know when I say New York's Manhattan, I'm not talking about way down at the end of Staten Island or way out in Long Island. Manhattan, all right, then. Manhattan. That makes you feel better. Okay. That's the engineer's mind. It's always working like that. So, nevertheless, the facts of the matter are that if that this is this is an increasing thing all over the country. I don't want to get into this hassle, but I'm I'm just making a prediction that in a short time, owning a car will be a luxury like owning a horse, and they will have courses eventually where you can go on a Sunday and drive a car around a prescribed course. If you remember the old days of driving cars of your own, you will go out and drive a car like today. People go out and ride a horse. They'll go to Central Park and they'll run a horse for a while and they'll ride it around for an hour and a half. You must remember a horse used to be a means of transportation for every man. It was not just a rare thing that a few guys did. Uh, and so today, it would, have, it, would have been, it would have seemed amazing to a man of, say, 200 years ago to think that a horse would be, would be completely impractical. Completely. Uh, <laughs> he would never foresee the day when guys would spend the maybe $10 an hour to go to some place and put fancy clothes on to symbolically ride a horse in a circle somewhere. With plastic trees around him, he would not—he would not have believed this. Well, I—I I will, I will predict that the day will come when old codgers who remember driving cars that were their own cars that had distinctive qualities to them, that they will go to a place where they will have cars, and he can go out and drive for a while in a very carefully controlled place, 
And uh, it won't be to get anywhere. That's You know, people who rent a horse at, at uh, Central Park are not going anywhere. They're just going in a circle. Well, that's literally what you'll do with the car. You'll go out and you'll drive in a big circle through the woods. They'll have all little bridges and things fixed up so that you can pretend like you're making curves and left turns and, and backing up. They'll have a place where you can park and they'll have a place where you can open her up, you know, that kind of stuff. And it'll all be very carefully controlled and then you'll take your car back to its barn and, and uh, you'll say, wow, boy, those are the days, and you'll walk away. And uh, you'll feel like you've had, of course, it'll cost you $25 for two and a half hours. And uh, it will be a symbolic thing, because I, I foresee the day when this is a giant megapolis. I mean, in, in the far future, maybe a hundred years, when the entire city, the entire country is one big, enormous city. Have you ever been to a country where that's true? Well, I have been. I have been to countries where they, it is just one big city. There, it's one, they, they've lived there for 10,000 years, and now it's a big city. Now, so what do they do? Nobody owns a car. You really can't. Uh, it's impossible when there's two and a half billion people living in, in a space that used to be for, say, 100,000. So you can't put a car anywhere. You can't. So eventually they wind up with, uh, with systems of, of transportation which do away with that. Uh, owning a car in Paris, now this is an example, uh, is practically an impossibility. Some people do, but it's a, it's a very, very difficult thing. So the systems of transportation in those countries are highly developed. The metro system in Paris is much more developed, really, than our, than our subway system here. Uh, you go to uh, a country like Germany, which is far more urbanized over, overall than our country, you'll find that their, uh, their, their systems of transportation are far more developed for a, an ordinary person to get, say, from Munich to Frankfurt. The trains are better. The system of getting there is much better than it is, say, to go from here to Philadelphia if you don't have a car. Uh, that we are in the last throes of a car civilization. I really believe this. And uh, the automobile has gone through some interesting convolutions. Uh, it, it, at, at one time, to give you an idea how much it replaced the horse, we still refer to a car in terms of horsepower, uh, as Danny pointed out that uh, they used to call it the horseless carriage. It was a, a true replacement for the horse. It, it, really, it really replaced a, 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 a living, breathing creature. Well, now the day has come, of course, when there are so many billions of people that owning a car is practically out of the question. Here, here's an example. Now, most guys used to think about a car in terms of their vacation. I remember my old man used to always say that. He would think, well, you know, when we go up to the lake, when we go up to Michigan, when we go up to places uh, way up in Wisconsin. I got to think about the car. Well, today, uh, even that is ridiculous because a guy can get into an airplane here and he can fly all the way out. He can take uh, whoever he wants. He can fly all the way out to San Francisco and fly all the way back uh, on an airplane on, on really, in many ways, less than it would cost him to do it by car, certainly in time and everything else. Uh, he has no problems uh, either doing it. So sure, he doesn't have any mobility when he gets out there. No, but, but he does. What he does uh, now is he rents a car when he gets out there. Just like a man would rent a horse uh, years ago, many years ago, men would rent horses. Did you know that was a big business in, in New York, was renting horses and stuff? You'd go to a place, you'd rent a horse. So, so uh, they rent a car for a couple of days, and then they hop on the plane and come back. So the automobile, as a means of, of tying cities together, has disappeared, really. It has almost practically uh, gone the way of the horse. Uh, now, 
when uh, when you get into the giant megapolis, many guys, uh, we, we build highways. We, we assume that the car will always be here. Robert uh, Moses does. He does. So he builds giant uh, arteries of concrete, and they are all inadequate, <laughs> every last one of them, uh, because it is impossible to keep up with the uh, with the great growth of these machines unless you pave the whole world. I mean, you have to pave the whole world and do away with all walking people and houses and everything, then cars, probably there would be enough room for cars. But it is ridiculous. I think it is ridiculous for us to sink all our dough into superhighways when no one will want to go on, on the superhighways eventually. Uh, they just won't want to do it. It's ridiculous. So, so you find 8 million cars between here and Jones Beach. It's a ridiculous thing on a Sunday afternoon to try to get from Manhattan. Or say, say if you live in Jersey and you want to go to Jones Beach. Oh, boy. Wowee. You have to leave at 4 o'clock in the morning, and then you're lucky if you miss it. But uh, if, if you leave at a, at a normal, uh, reasonable hour, say noon, boy, it's three and a half hours before you even get near the beach. And it might be 4.30 by the time you finally arrive. And when you do get there, the signs all say, this lot filled. I mean, there are 87 million cars who must have been there from two months back. They just stay there. They don't go home anymore. And then, <laughs> then, then you turn around and you, you, you spend a couple hours at the beach. And everyone leaves the beach now at least three hours earlier than they would have wanted to. They say, well, you know, we've got to, let's beat the traffic. Well, what they do is <laughs> beat what? You know, 87 million other guys are saying it. And they get out on that Long Island Parkway, and it is one giant chunk of metal by the time, 4.30 already, going back somewhere, going back to Jersey, wherever it might be. So the, so the idea of a car is, is uh, pretty silly, really. And uh, I, I, I personally have beaten it. I have this, uh, not, but I know that that's not going to last. I have this little motorcycle. I go between them and around them and above them and all <laughs> everywhere else. It's like everyone thinks I'm a nut, but I get there. You know, I'm, I'm there while they're still back at the 59th Street Bridge with the radiator boiling over. But uh, it, it's, it, it makes it hard. So we've had to go back, really. The car has, has finally defeated its purpose, and man has had to go back to the original ways to get the places, to get around the cars now. Uh, he has to start... Guys are buying bicycles now. Other guys are buying gigantic walking boots so they can walk to, 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 uh, to, to, to Jones Beach. Other guys are buying motorcycles, which were big in 1919, I understand. Uh, other characters are buying pogo sticks. Some guys are buying stilts. But uh, the fact is uh, nobody seriously buys a car with the eye to getting anywhere anymore. The car has become practically an obsolete thing. You may buy a horse, but you don't think in terms of riding it from here to Wilmington, Delaware, which is what a guy used to buy a horse for. And, and the final irony of it all is how many guys I know who buy cars make a big issue about buying cars, and then they put them in the garage, and then when they go on their vacation to Maine, they fly. And you say to them, well, Charlie, you bought the car, it was a big deal. He says, yeah, but I, I, it would take me a, a day and a half to get there, and a day and a half back, and all that traffic on the Jersey Turnpike? What are you talking about? Do you think I'm a nut? I said, well, what do you use your car for? Well, I, uh... I, uh, I go up to Connecticut once in a while. I wonder, I uh, vacation there, I, uh, well, I can't use it. I, I'm out. And, uh, and so nobody really knows what he uses his car for anymore. It's very hard to discover that. Uh, so I don't know. <laughs> I, I think that, uh, that, that we, of course, building these giant highways, I believe, is a lost cause. Uh, in fact, last summer, do you remember last summer, I took the trip on US-1 
Uh, and the only reason I could get from here to Maine in a car was that I, I got off the superhighway. And it's like I'm driving over the hills and, and uh, through the hedges and up and down through guys' backyards and uh, under the culverts and all that, going by way of the non-turnpike route, uh, which was far more civilized than going by way of the turnpike, where, where the, I could see this giant traffic jam for miles on the turnpike. And I'm banging along on the potholes, but nobody's ahead of me or behind me. So I don't know. I, I, it made me realize that, that the car has had it, actually. And owning a car particularly has had it. I, I suspect that the, in the end uh, it's going to be one giant flyway, our world. It'll be an enormous flyway, and there will be, in, in each place where you go, there will be a pool of cars to rent or some kind of private transportation. Other, other than that, I bet in 150 years, this country will be honeycombed with an enormous subway system. You will be able to get on what, what is the equivalent of a subway and ride from New York to Philadelphia at 125 miles an hour underground. I predict this. And uh, it'll just take you there like a shot underground. And uh, there will be another subway that will connect Philadelphia to Washington. There will be a subway that will connect New York to uh, Bridgeport. And, there, and it'll go right up into Boston. You'll get all these different subways. And, of course, you'll pay more. It won't be like a subway. You'll pay maybe $10 to get from here to Boston. But it will be in maybe three hours flat and 125 miles an hour. It'll just boom right up there. There will be other, other subways that will go uh, probably out. They'll, be, they'll begin slowly. But I predict that eventually you'll be able to get into some kind of a subway that will go uh, perhaps uh, 200 miles an hour. It will go from here to places like Harrisburg, here to places like Wilmington, 45 minutes, something like that. It just has to be in the end. That, that's what will happen when there are 8 million people per square inch. They will no longer be able to give them the luxury of that 87 square feet of space that is the automobile. Uh, <laughs> just like schools. Have you, have you recently, have you recently, have you encountered modern medicine, really modern medicine? that one of the things that's beginning to develop in, in our in dehumanized world, of course, everyone likes to think it's because we have bad values that our world is becoming inhuman, but I, I don't. I believe that it's, it's the natural result of, gen, of a genuine population growth. I don't think there will be any case to be made any longer for individual humanity. Uh, have you seen, have you recently been involved in modern medicine, either you guys? Well, I'll tell you one of the most interesting things about modern medicine is it's assembly line features that that growing up all over New York for example there are places where they have like hundred and fifty maybe five hundred patients and there might be ten doctors and uh, you just come in on a great assembly line they will they will examine you uh, in, a, in a two hour period three hour period of examination with x-rays and all that stuff and they will make a, a uh, some kind of a diagnosis if, if there's anything wrong with you and then there will be eight different doctors who might take care of you. But there is no such thing as a patient. Uh, dentists are going in for this now. This is where there will be eight dentists in one office, and they will have thousands of patients. It will be like a, a giant clinic. Uh, it's, it's like a Sears Roebuck or something of the dentistry world. And it's a new system where, where the doctor doesn't even see you, you know, until you're ready. Uh, I had to have some oral surgery done here sometime. It was a very interesting experience, and my dentist... He says, you know, he says, I realize I'm obsolete now, 
my, my real dentist, he says, I, I'm sending you to this place where they do oral surgery. And they, uh, I says, well, who's going to do it? He says, well, he says, I don't know. It's the place where they do oral surgery. <laughs> and uh, he says, they're very good, but, but uh, he says, it's the, there's a whole lineup over there. You don't know who you'll get or anything. And he won't even know you. So I, I says, oh, this is ridiculous. Well, here's the way it happened. I go to this place in the morning, and they've already been briefed by my dentist. Uh, they don't know. So I'm already briefed. They are. Not me. They are. And I arrive at this place, and there's a very faceless-looking girl. She asks you about three questions that are very general, and she's got a form already filled out on you. She says, wait one moment. And suddenly, another type person comes out. These are very, they, they, don't, say any, they don't say, good morning, Mr. Mr. Brown, or anything. They don't care, you, because there's eight million other people behind you. They take you into a room, and they say, wait here. And the girl asks you two more questions. She leaves, and another girl comes, and she's got equipment. She takes your blood test. She just, uh, very efficiently, she, she writes it down. And she says, oh, uh, all right. She says, are you allergic to uh, penicillin? You say, no. She says, okay. She leaves. And uh, you're waiting in there. You're in a room, and you don't know what's going to happen. You, you, there has not been one doctor that has been involved with you yet at this point. And so then she says, uh, well, uh, all right, come with me. This is another girl, remember. You've already been in, in three different girls. Each girl is in charge of one phase of the operation. The girl who has just left you, who's been taking the blood pressure, is now in eight other patients' rooms taking the same blood pressure. She did not, uh, So finally, another girl comes, Walt, and she says, come with me. You have not even seen this girl. And she says, come with me now. And she takes you into this room where the operation is about to be performed. And there is still no doctor. And not a single guy have you seen. They put you down in this, this girl. A, she does. She puts you down on the desk, in the, in the, in the chair. She stra does all the stuff, puts the, the cloth over you and the thing over your head and all that. And you're, you're waiting there. And nothing happens. You, there has not been a doctor. And suddenly you hear for the first time a male voice. And he says to this female, who has now been joined by another one, he says to this female, uh, all the preparations ready. And she says, yes. And suddenly a man moves into your sight. You have not seen him up to this instant. He now has a chart. He takes a quick look at it, which he has probably already looked at. He wants to make sure he's got the right one. He takes a quick look at it. Does not even look in your mouth. Get this. It's all done absolutely. Yeah, you're covered. All you, your little eyeballs are just looking out. Oh, yeah, he's all. You can't even see him. He's got a mask on. That's right. This guy looks like he can be He can be Frankenstein or King Kong or a mad scientist. You know what, a, what he is. And then the one little moment of, of great humanity comes. He, he looks at you. He just looks at you through his mask, and he reaches his hand out. Well, now, I, 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 the only thing, I, I didn't know whether he was going to grab me or hit me or what, so I stuck my hand out. I shook his hand. I, that's the only thing I could think of do. I shook his hand. He didn't say anything. And he, with that, they've rolled you. You've got your sleeves up. They rolled you up, and they start uh, with, with that. He says to the girl, uh, you know, the, these mysterious symbols that they use on us. Uh, two cc, two cc, he says like that. He says, one, two, three drops. It goes in your arms. They're giving you the anesthetic, you know. And he says, I want you to, he says, open your mouth wide. Can you hear me? And he's fading away. No, no. Boing, and it's all over. With that, you wake up, and he is cleared out. You don't see this guy anymore. And now another girl is behind you. She's the one that takes care of the blood. 
she's the one that comes in when 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 all of it and and you're done you know you know what you, you get up and everybody's gone the whole corps is my old friends my old crew the guy with the mask well he's probably beheaded nine other people since you've been out you know so you get up and she she leads you and you're staggering away back she, you sit down in this room she sit here you sit down and she's gone now you think well now that's the blood one that's the one she's going to be in charge of convalescence and no no suddenly another girl appears and she says what would you have will you have tea or coffee can you hear me and of course you're still out of your skull your eyeballs are going around you've had the sodium pentothal and, and birds are tweeting and you're you're flying around the ceiling she says tea or coffee please meaning she hasn't got time to fool around with this one guy tea or coffee and i said uh uh uh, 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 coffee, co coffee, coffee, very good. Do you like it with sugar or cream or nothing? Uh, 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 you know, your mind is just a stagger. Nothing. And she says, very good. S instantly, you've got a cup of coffee. What am I doing? A cup of coffee? You're not, you, you start drinking a cup of coffee. And she says, if you desire, you may lay down. You may lie down. Sometimes people fall out of the window here. We like them to lie down. So I lie down for a second, and then I am up. And suddenly a girl comes without another one. I don't know the endless succession of these women, you see, all short, dark ladies with mustaches wearing white coats. Suddenly, yeah, they, none of them speak. I don't know. They have very special language. Suddenly she is there, and you think you are in the, in the land of the, of the egg people or in some giant science fiction story you know, where these little, these little monsters work on you. So she comes in and she says, she says, are you all right? And you say yes, and then with that, grabs you by the scuff of the neck, you are up, and they have their, uh, three other little short guys are putting your coat on, and you are being propelled to the door. And, <laughs> and then you, you, are, you are sent down the chute to another place where, where a large lady with big glasses says, uh, here, uh, give this to your dentists. No, she says, you are going to a drugstore. Do you have a drugstore? Yes. You don't know what's a yes. Do you have a drugstore? They talk to you like you're some kind of product or something. Do you have a drugstore? Well, one thing interesting about these places, they treat all people as though they can neither hear, understand, or speak English. That, that uh, when, when in the new in the new speak world where uh, where everything is done by rote and automatic, they cannot take time off to say, well, this guy might be interesting. This guy might this guy might understand something. This guy here is a is a cretin. So they treat everyone like a cretin. Do you have a drugstore? You are, yes, madam, I do have a drugstore. You know, you get a little bug. And then she gets very bugged because you are making an answer other than yes or no, which, which holds up the assembly line a little. She says, uh, all right, ask for this. Can you read this? And I said, well, yes, I can read this. It says pot. It says uh, marijuana or something. She says, very good, very good. Pay, please. And, and then they start asking for money right away. It's all, very automatic. So you reach in your pocket, and she has a, she's a, run a total credit check on you. It's all very automatic. They do not even accept money there. It's the only place in the world. I imagine you can get it on your diner's club card there. You know, it's all off. Boom, 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 it goes. And so you sign the check, and she goes boom, boom, boom. And ten seconds later, you are down on the street. You have not talked to anybody. You have not had any, you know, the usual the thing with the doctor, nothing like that. And it's all done in very, very impersonal fashion. 
Now, I don't know how I would get in touch with that guy with the mask at 3 o'clock in the morning if all of a sudden the top of my head started to fall out and I was bleeding out of the ears, you know. That, that happens. I don't know. Who I want the guy with the mask, the one with the funny head, the, with the ears. Yeah, yeah, hey, hey, dental place. I want the guy that shook my hands. Yeah, well, I don't know who he is. Who? And, and, of course, they got a list of 798 guys. What is that? a short one? They all wear masks. They're all short and they got funny ears. Now, what do you want to What do you want to Go to your local dentist. And, of course, my local dentist has already been swallowed up by the machine, and he's working in some place, obviously, where they go, chung, 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 ah, they hammer it out. He said that one, he says that, the, that this is going all the way, that there are some places where they really compartmentalized it, where they have a phalanx of guys who only fill teeth on the lower left. These are right-handed guys who have trouble getting around. Then they have a phalanx of guys who fill them on the lower right, they have a phalanx of guys who put the rubber dams in, you know, and all that. And nobody knows anybody else. He says, so I, he says, it's very interesting to find that one guy will work on one half of a thing, another guy will work on the other half. You'll be sent through the chute, and the other guy will finish it up with a, you'll polish it off, and down the chute you go. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a mad scene. Well, well, of course, the doctors are, are, are working into this scene, too. There are very few doctors, you know, they... It's, it's, that's one of the reasons why you can get some wild diagnoses, really. You can get some insanely uh, uh, inadequate and inaccurate diagnoses when, you, when you're working on a giant assembly system. If that one little unusual thing comes in, like the tooth with 19 roots, you know, comes in. Well, oh, that's true. I mean, I knew a guy that had a tooth that hit, the roots went all the way down to his ankles, you know. They, that's the fact. And it was his ankle was hurting. They didn't realize he had a, it was his tooth that was doing it. You know, it went all the way down through well, now, when that guy comes along, he's just not going to make it in these clinics. He's just not. They're not gonna, they'll just drill him out, you know. They just clean him all out. Get him all out. And that's it. They clean it off and start all over fresh with a set of friendly dentures that smile when you sleep. Well, now, <laughs> these are all foretastes of things to come. Uh, I don't know how quaintly old Dr. Christian would have fitted in with the Blue Cross plan. Uh, I'm not, just not quite so sure. And nothing is worse than a guy that comes down with something that's not listed in the Blue Cross. You try to get a good case of leprosy in T-neck. Just find out what happens, Dad. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.